Wait, wait, what? What do you What do you mean he's not going to make it? We've got a show to do. He's got a voice. Oh, oh, damn it! All right, well. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Debating Metal. I'm your host, Kenneth Dean, Dean of Metal. And and tonight, I am without my metal partner in crime, Chris K. He is recovering from some sort of cold, cough, sinus thingy. So tonight, I'm flying solo on this special edition of Debating Metal. So tonight, we're going to be talking about debut EPs uh, from 80s metal bands and the stories behind them. Not necessarily stories behind them, but basically the details like I like to give to you guys. But there's going to be a couple of stories here and there about the bands and some of my personal experiences with some of these albums as they came out. So as you know, in the 80s, heavy metal really began to take off and forge its own path. Uh, While it eventually became subdivided into glam metal and thrash metal and speed metal and all the other metals that you can think of back then, uh, when it first started out, it was simply just heavy metal. Um, so the other interesting thing about the golden era of 80s metal was the rise of independent record labels that would sprout as a result of a lot of these bands not being able to get signed to major record labels, major record label deals or, you know, things like that. You know, basically not getting a recording contract from a Warner Brothers or a Sony, and it wasn't Sony at the time, it was CBS or Epic. So labels like Metal Blade, Megaforce, and Combat and Enigma in the United States, Neat, Music for Nations, and Secret Records in the UK, uh, along with Roadrunner and Noise Records in Europe, all began in the early 80s signing bands that most major labels had no interest in. Couple that with many bands releasing albums all on their own, and the 80s metal scene was an explosive era of development and creativity for some of the biggest bands to come out in, in music history. I mean, when you think about like Iron Maiden, who released uh, the Soundhouse tapes, you know, through, uh, you know, their own means and got signed by uh, EMI in in England, eventually getting a, you know, a a contract from Capital in the United States. I mean, mean, Iron Maiden is one of the biggest bands in the world. So that, that, you know, that shows you. The, the fortitude that they had, and then they finally got signed, but it was only because they put out their own EP, you know, and, and Iron Maiden, I'm not going to include on this list tonight. Um, this is probably going to be the type of show um, that we do whenever there's a situation like this. And obviously this is the first time that we're having a situation where we didn't record or one of us wasn't available to record, but we felt like we needed to get an episode out for you guys to listen to uh, because we, we got some pretty good momentum going right now. So, um, I didn't want to put off something else for, and, and give it a three week, uh, you know, space in between one episode and the next. We already had a delay because I was on vacation. We tried to get an episode done in between that, but there was uh, all sorts of complications going on trying to trying to get that thing recorded. So we ended up uh, just skipping it. And now, you know, Chris got sick, so uh, it's left up to me to put this out. So you guys are going to be stuck listening to me for the next, I don't know, 30 to 45 minutes. Because I'm not going to make it too long, or I hope I'm not going to make it too long. (laughs) Um, But anyhow, on tonight's episode, I'm going to look at some of those bands' first releases that were either independently released or released on newly formed independent labels. 
And then so you understand the distinction, independently released albums or EPs were released on the by the band or the band's management and for the most part was self-financed um, in order to get their name out there. And then the flip side is independent record labels like a Metal Blade or a Megaforce. Uh, those are record companies that began when someone decided to put up the money to record, mix, master, and press an album for one of these bands that they really believed in. And basically the company grew from there. So very similar, um, you know, Megaforce Records started when uh, Johnny Z wanted to record Metallica. Um, Metallica was the first artist that basically, quote unquote, signed to Megaforce. I mean, essentially it was Johnny inviting Metallica out to New Jersey, come to my house, stay at my house, we'll record an album, and then you know, I'll, I'll put it out for you. I'll release it. I'll press it. I'll, you know, whatever it takes to get an album out, he did for them. So he was able to put up some money for this and basically mortgaged his entire life and career and all that stuff uh, on Megaforce Records. And I think uh, he did pretty well for himself after some time. So, you know, but that's the way it works. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. So I'm going to keep it simple and I'm going to keep it down to six bands this time. Next time, uh, if it comes up again, uh, then we'll put out another six records or something like that. But because there's a bunch of EPs that have come out in this format, in this process of being independently released one way or the other. So we've got lots of different bands we could choose from, but I decided to pick these six today because, hey, that's me. So, all right. The first band that we're going to talk about tonight is Lizzie Borden and their EP release, Give Them the Axe. Uh, Give Them the Axe came out in 1984 on Metal Blade Records. It was produced by Brian Slagle and it was recorded at Track Records in Los Angeles, California. Okay, Lizzie Borden... Uh, consists of Lizzie Borden on vocals, Tony Matuzek on guitars, Gene Allen on guitars, Mike Davis on bass, and Joey Scott Hargis on drums. So Lizzie Borden was formed in 1983 by brothers Joey Scott Hargis and Lizzie Borden. Uh, and essentially, the band was featured on Metal Massacre 4 with an early version of the song Rod of Iron, which would later appear on their debut LP Love You to Pieces in 1985. Metal Blade Records and the Metal Massacre series was the brainchild of Brian Slagle, uh, who was at the time a heavy metal music fan who was writing a fanzine named the New Heavy Metal Review. And um, he basically decided to get all these local unsigned bands some exposure and asked them to to participate in his his compilation album and give them or give him one song that they wanted to put on the record, you know, and basically that's how Metal Massacre started. And famously, many people know that Metallica, their first recording ever was released on the first Metal Massacre that came out in 1982. So there was a lot of firsts involved there. Um, and that's, that's basically how Metal Blade records came about. So moving on with Lizzie Borden, um, you know, based on their rising popularity, because of the song Rod of Iron appearing on Metal Massacre or Metal Massacre 4, um, Metal Blade signed Lizzie Borden and then they released the EP later in 1984. Um, then the EP included the songs Give Him the Axe, Kiss of Death, 
No Time to Lose, and a cover of the Rainbow Song, Long Live Rock and Roll. Lizzie Borden, when they came out in 85, I mean, they're, the, the, well, they came out in 84, but, you know, Give Him the Axe was a really cool song, and then that cover of, of Long Live Rock and Roll were really good songs. So then when they released their debut album, Love You to Pieces, the song American Metal was on that, and that is a great song. I mean, that really kind of like, you know, defined what the era was all about because you think, you know, you had the new wave of British heavy metal that was putting out a bunch of good stuff. Iron Maiden, Def Leppard, they were all coming out, you know, Zaxxon, Diamond Head, they, they were all putting out albums. And, you know, America was just about, you know, catching on. You know, and they were probably a couple of years late to the party. But even then, like, you know, you talk about 1982, Motley Crue came out. Um, you know, Dokken had come out. But they weren't huge. And and for the most part, neither was uh, the new wave of British heavy metal. But a lot of people knew about it in terms of the circle of heavy metal heads all around the world. You know, so Lizzie Borden, I mean, they were, for me... As a kid, listening to this in 1985, I'm 16 years old, and it's really freaking cool. You know, uh, American Metal, to me, just was uh, an awesome song, and I go back and I buy Give Him the Axe, and this is a really cool EP, and, and at the time, it was still readily available, so that's that's the cool thing. All this stuff was just out there. It was new. It was fresh. It was... It was just exciting to listen to some of this stuff. Um, so, you know, you 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 listen to these um, these tracks, and and you know, if if I recognize "Long Live Rock and Roll" because I heard it from Rainbow, and then I hear a new band doing it, I'm like, you know, they're paying you know homage to it. It it is. It's cool to listen to that, and you know, and, and Metallica was doing that, but I didn't discover Metallica for another couple of years at this point, uh, or maybe a year later. It's just so interesting to me, you know, and it's it's hard to kind of express it and not have someone that I normally talk to express the same kind of interest in his things back. But oh, it's almost one of those things where you kind of had to be there, you know, to to really experience what it was it, it was like. But anyhow, um, a little bit more on the on the EP. In 1995, so we're talking 11 years after its release or their debut, um, the entire Lizzie Borden catalog was remastered and re-released. And given the acts, the EP was actually added to the Terrorizing EP, so basically now became an eight-song CD or eight-song album, however you want to look at it, uh, for that release. And then for the first time, given given the axe was commercially available on CD. So that was pretty cool. So now it's remastered, sounds great, and it's commercially available on CD. You could buy it for like $10 or whatever it was at the time. Now me, I'm working at the record store at this time in 1985. I established a relationship with Metal Blade Records. And because of that relationship, they ended up sending me the entire Lizzie Borden collection, which was four studio albums, the two EPs on one CD, one live album, and the best of, all remastered and delivered right to my desk at my office in my store. That was pretty awesome. I really dug that. And one final interesting tidbit on the Lizzie Borden uh, Long Live Rock and Roll cover. Uh, 
on the remastered edition that came out um, along with the Terror Rising EP, there's a hidden bonus track at the end of Long Live Rock and Roll. And I don't know. I mean, I, I listened to it again the other day just to kind of get an idea of exactly what it was. But it, it starts out to be the drum intro to Don't Touch Me There, which is the, the second song that's on the Terrorizing EP. So I don't know if this is something that was added from Terrorizing or if it was something that was added just because it was added to the end of, of Long Live Rock and Roll. But either way, nonetheless, um, it starts off with the drum beat to, to, to the Don't Touch Me There. And it literally just devolves into a bunch of noise, you know, speed drumming and, you know, a bunch of crunchy guitars and all that stuff and just a rambling mess. And then it ends. So it's about a minute long at the end of the, the, the CD. Um, it's just one of those things that bands do. And so uh, Lizzie Borden was one of the latest ones to do it at the time. So that's Lizzie Borden and um, Give Him the Axe, the EP that was released in 1984. Um, give it a listen. I mean, it's super cool. I think I may have mentioned it a long time ago on one of uh, our episodes during our, when we used to do Rusty Metal. Uh, and I, I believe I mentioned it. So this is another shot at listening to it again. So if you haven't listened to it, give it a go. Okay, so now we're going to move on to another band out of L.A., and this one is a little bit more popular, and this one's a little bit more familiar to many of you guys out there that listen to glam music. Um, I'm going to talk about the band Rat. Uh, the, the band um, Rat released their self-titled debut EP, if you want to put it that way, in uh, on August 23rd, 1983, on Time Coast Communications, and it was produced by Liam Sternberg. Um, the location of where it was recorded is not known, so I don't have that information. Uh, the band at the time of the recording consisted of Stephen Piercy on vocals, Robin Crosby on guitars, Warren Martini on guitars, Juan Crozier on bass, and Bobby Blotzer on drums. I don't know if I'm pronouncing Juan's name the right way. I don't know if it's Crozier or Crozier or Crozier or whatever it is. All I know is that Juan's been around the, the block uh, for a while. He's pretty, he started in Dawkins, then joined Rat. Um, the songs on the album are number one, Sweet Cheater. Two, You Think You're Tough. Number three, You Got It. Number four, Tell the World. Number five, Back for More. And the last song in the album is called Walking the Dog, which is a Rufus Thomas cover. Okay, so a little bit about Rat. Rat, as we know them today, gained popularity in the early 80s. Attempting to secure a record contract, uh, the band, which was known as Mickey Rat at the time, and had a lineup that included Jakey Lee of Ozzy Osbourne fame, independently released a single called Dr. Rock... Uh, with a B-side, Driving on E. And they would hand them out at all their shows that they would do locally, and they were just basically trying to get interest in the band. So if they're handing them out at shows, um, sometimes, you know, uh, the, the, the whole thing is, besides giving it to fans to try and, you know, get the fans to remember them, it was also a way of trying to get record company execs that might be at a show to listen to them and to, and if it's attractive get them signed. So that was the big deal about giving out or handing out your, 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 a single. Cause usually that usually it was a seven inch single that you would give out at the show. Something that didn't cost a tremendous amount of money to put out. 
you know, most of these bands didn't have a lot of money, if any at all. So they would, you know, uh, have girlfriends pay for their stuff or whatever, you know, something, you know, or their manager, usually it was a manager, but you know, I mean, uh, I believe Motley Crue famously had one of their girlfriends pay for something for them. So it was one of the things where they would stay at their girlfriend's apartment so that they could live rent free. In 1982, the band simply now known as Rat recorded a song called Tell the World and had it re- included on the Metal Massacre uh, album. And this happened to be the first Metal Massacre release in 1982. And um, it was funny because, you know, like I mentioned earlier, um, it was you know, completely independent, and this is the one that had Metallica on it. It also had Steeler, it had Black and Blue, uh, Sirith Ungol, and Bitch were all on that first Metal Massacre release. Now, the song from Rat, Tell the World, was featured on the first two pressings of Metal Massacre, but because of their popularity, they requested the song be pulled, and it was never replaced uh, on on the, the the album. So essentially the album went from nine songs to eight songs, I believe it was, or 10 to nine, something like that. And same thing kind of happened with Steeler. Uh, they gained in popularity with the song Cold Day in Hell. They had the song pulled after a couple of pressings and it was replaced by Black and Blue with uh, Chains Around Heaven. So that is uh, the way that worked out. And if I'm not mistaken... I have the CD of the first Metal Massacre. It is the one that came out later. It does not have Steeler on it. It has, uh, it does not have Steeler or or Rat on it, but it does have Metallica. It does have Bitch on it, um, and it does have Black and Blue with their song "Chains Around Heaven," which is a different version than the one that's on the first album for Black and Blue. Anyhow, basically, based on that single going out there, there was enough interest in the band that they ended up getting signed to a production deal by uh, manager Marshall Burl. He promptly had the band enter the studio and record this EP. So the band released the song You Think You're Tough as a single, which basically garnered him a lot of popularity. I mean, it took off as a, as a single locally. Uh, look, some of the local radio stations were playing the crap out of it. And it got the attention of Atlantic Records, who basically signed them shortly thereafter. So this EP contains a song called Back For More on it, and um, that that version of Back For More is a little bit different than the one that came out on Out of the Cellar. What's cool about it, like when you listen to it, it, it I don't I don't think it's a remix. I mean, it could easily be one of those things where they could have just remixed it. But I, I, I believe it was completely re-recorded for the sessions for Out of the Cellar. But there's something really cool about the way it was mixed and the way that the bass was played on it. And you can hear a lot of the plucking and there's some specific, like, really excessively plucked notes that stand out on this version uh, of Back For More that's definitely not uh, apparent on the version that's on Out of the Cellar. It, it's just a completely different version. Both are very cool. It's it's cool to have when you see different kinds of, just kind of like the evolution of a song. Sometimes the original is better than the later version. Uh very similar how White Lion recorded a song called Broken Heart on their first release, um, Fight to Survive, in 1985. And that was independently released, but 
when they got their big record contract and they were down to basically the end of their career, if you want to look at it that way, they were, they were struggling to survive, <laughs> put it that way, uh, in, in, in the, the early grunge era. And so they released that album, Main Attraction, in 1991. And I, the record company basically asked them for a, a, a hit single type of thing. And they, basically, they had Broken Heart was a, was a strong song for them. But a lot of people didn't know the song, and, and they were trying to appeal to the masses, so they had them re-record it. It's, you know, the, the, the version on Fight to Survive is so much better than the version that's on Main Attraction. So, and what didn't help, too, is that Glam Metal was on the way out in 1991. So, it didn't help them or the scene whatsoever. So, the last thing on the, on the Rat EP is... Um, both the EP and LP out of the cellar that came out a year later feature the late Tony Katane on the cover. And on the Rat EP, the only thing you get to see is Tony's legs. While on out of the cellar, you see her uh, crawling along the front cover. So, and you know, many people know Tony Katane as the woman who ended up being uh, on the hood of David Coverdale's car in here I go again. And eventually I believe they were dating for a short while. So she was featured on several different, uh, white snake videos in 1987. And the final word on this, the EP was remixed and remastered in 1984 following the the success of out of the cellar. So it, it came out completely different. So the cover is the same, but when you flip it over to the back, They changed the picture on the back cover to be more relevant to the way Rat was at the time. So the picture on the back cover really is, uh, I think it's an outtake from the Out of the Cellar sessions, which I kind of thought was kind of messed up. And you think about it, you're re-releasing something that's older than the album you just recorded, but you're putting a picture on it of the band that's technically newer than the music that's on there. It's kind of weird to me. I didn't like things like that. I didn't like changing history. It's what I call that revisionist history to some degree. And, you know, yeah, they remixed it. Yeah, they remastered it and they re-released it. But, you know, it's it's almost like if Motley Crue had taken, you know, Too Fast for Love and instead of, you know, putting it out with the with the album cover that they had, you know, they went ahead and they would have done a new album you know like a new photo session and put new pictures on it only reason that may have worked at the time was because that album you know even the electra version came out before shout at the devil but it, just imagine if they would they would re-release it and put pictures from the shout at the devil photo uh, record uh, photo sessions on too fast for love you know it would have been kind of weird anyway irrelevant so that is rat with their self-titled debut EP, Rat. All right, so next up, we got another Metal Blade alumni. And they, you know, one of the reasons why they're alumni, why you know it, it's these three bands, they're all out of L.A., all came out around the same time. So it's one of those things where it's like, okay, well, L.A. was only, you know, uh, was only so big and, you know, not a lot of people were independently releasing records at the time, so Metal Blade was the one scooping them all up. All right. Well, the next band I'm going to talk about uh, and their release is Armored Saint and the Armored Saint EP. 
That came out on August 9th, 1983 on Metal Blade Records. It was produced by Armored Saint and was recorded at Track Records and in Los Angeles, California. So it's the same place where uh, Give Him the Axe was done in a year later. Armored Saint consists of John Bush on vocals, Dave Pritchard on guitars, Phil Sandoval on guitars, Joey Vera on bass, and Gonzo Sandoval on drums. The EP contains three tracks uh, titled Lesson Well Learned, False Alarm, and On the Way. Okay, so the way the story behind this is, you know, obviously the band formed, um, they, the band grew up friends in high school and stuff like that. So they kind of just evolved together. They finally, put, you know, decided to put the band together, named it Armored Saint in 1982. So they, they've basically been together, I think, since 1979, somewhere, something like that, as a band. But in 1982, the band recorded a five-song demo um, from which the three songs that are featured on this EP were recorded. So um, they recorded this five-song demo. The th- three of the songs became what this EP is. Okay, so the, the lead track on the album, Lesson Well Learned, was featured on Metal Massacre 2, so which that is the second compilation that was released by Metal Blade Records in the Metal Massacre series. And that was released later in 1982. Um, so it, um, it, it obviously came out before this EP, but this EP had been recorded that year, or the, the songs that were featured on this EP. So um, they were asked to, to see if they wanted to participate in Metal Massacre 2, and they did, so they gave uh, Brian Slagle the song Lesson Well Learned, it appeared on there and they, you know, they gained in popularity. So um, essentially, Brian said, yeah, you know what, I'm going to sign you guys to Metal Blade Records. And he did. So they came out with the EP. Now, I don't know how the story goes, but I think they talked about it on the special edition of Symbol of Salvation. They had a really long interview and I don't recall because it's been a while since I've heard that interview. But Brian has always regretted not keeping Armored Saint on the Metal Blade roster. He lost them to Chrysalis. They got picked up by Chrysalis Records for you know in their debut album, March of the Saint. Came out the following year. I believe it was one of those things where they you know they were friends with Brian. I think they Brian was like okay you know. I don't have the kind of money that Chrysalis can, is is offering you. And I think that's the reason why they lost or why they left Metal Blade. But if Brian had his way, he would have tried everything he could to keep Armored Saint, which basically is currently on Metal Blade Records now to this day. So it's one of those things that just didn't work out at the time. I think they probably would have been better off had they stayed on Metal Blade, because Chrysalis had no idea what to do with Armored Saint. He, you know, they they tried to make them something else. Sometimes the band kind of, you know, acquiesces to the to the to the requests of the record company for the betterment of the band. Sometimes, and a lot of times, really not for the betterment of the band, and it ends up destroying the band. Um, in this case, it didn't necessarily destroy the band, but it didn't give them the, the popularity that they were so seeking at the time. So anyhow, this EP was featured on Armored Saints 2001 compilation named Nod to the Old School, which also contained Stricken by Fate, which was recorded as part of the five song demo from which the EP came. 
Now, stricken by fate, if you don't, if if there are any Armored Saint fans out there, was included or not necessarily included, but it was recorded for the first album, uh, March of the Saint. So, one interesting tidbit uh, on this EP is that on the liner notes for the compilation, not to the old school, it says that all the songs that were produced and engineered by Bill Matoria. Now, all the songs, meaning the, the three songs that are on the EP and then the addition of Stricken by Fate. So it says they were produced and engineered by Bill Matoria. But on the original release that came out uh, in 1983, it says it's produced by Armored Saint. So that's a, a an interesting kind of note. It's like, you know, that's almost like doing your own revisionist history. You know, maybe they realized that uh, Bill was a little bit more involved than they thought, or maybe it was a way of giving Bill more credit now so he can get, you know, a couple, uh, a point or something on the nod to the old school, you know, to give him some more money. I don't know. It, it's something that's didn't cost anything, I guess, to put on the, th- on the, on the, uh, on the compilation, but whatever, you know, maybe it was a favor or something like that. Who knows? Um, but it's a pretty interesting thing to, to change, you know, say, oh, we, we produced it the first time. And then, oh, yeah, really, this guy kind of produced it. But whatever. I mean, it's pretty cool. Bill Matoyer, if I'm not mistaken, is is uh, really close with Metal Blade. And he's done a lot of stuff for Metal Blade over the years. I, I, other than knowing that he does a lot of work for Metal Blade, I don't know what the relationship is between him and, and Brian Slagle. You know, maybe they're best friends. Who knows? Maybe they were, you know, maybe Brian gave Bill his first job at, you know, at Track Studios or whatever it may have been. Who knows? But nonetheless, uh, I recently picked up the EP for like $25 or something like that. Um, So I may have overpaid for it, but it was really something I I wanted to get when I saw it. So it's something that I'm like, yeah, I think uh, this is something that um, I want to put into my collection. All right, so next up on the list of EPs is Celtic Frost with their EP Morbid Tales, and um, that is their debut release. Uh, It was released in November of 1984 on Noise Records. It was produced by Horst uh, Mueller, I believe is the way we pronounce his name, Uh, Tom Warrior, Martin Ain, and Carl Walterbach. It was recorded at Kayette Studio in Berlin, Germany. All right, so Celtic Frost consists of Tom Warrior on vocals and guitar, Martin Ain on bass, and Stephen Priestley on drums at this time. Um, shortly after the release of this EP or album, however you want to look at it, um, they changed drummers and they had an American drummer named Reed St. Mark join uh, the ranks. So anyhow, um, the way this album or EP came up came about was that fresh off the termination of the pre- their previous band Hellhammer uh, Tom Fisher and Eric uh, formed Celtic Frost as a way to distance themselves from Hellhammer they were trying to make it a little bit more um, professional I guess you want if you want to put it that way sounded better recorded better but that failed miserably and Hellhammer the reputation of Hellhammer hung on them really bad. And, and, and I mean, quite honestly, I was doing the research for this. I I looked up a picture of Hellhammer or I was looking up images of Hellhammer to kind of see something about the corpse paint, if they wore any corpse paint at the time. 
And amazingly enough, there was a picture of Trypticon, which is Tom G. Fisher's uh, latest project. Uh, he has, I believe, a woman bass player, uh, you know, a couple of guys that have been around from the scene in the band. And so I noticed the picture, and it's definitely Trypticon, and it says, uh, instead of referencing Celtic Frost, it says, you know, former members of Hellhammer. And I'm like, what in the world does Hellhammer have to do with Trypticon, other than the fact that, you know, Tom Fisher is is the same Tom Fisher that was in Hellhammer. It's like, that. that's how bad the reputation of Hellhammer hung on you know, on, on Tom and Eric, it's, it's just insane to think that it was to this day, they're still referencing Hellhammer when in reality, you know, Tom tried to distance himself so much that he didn't want anything to do with it anymore. And, and I mean, he's obviously been involved in, in some of the re-releases that they've had over the years, but still it's kind of like, you know, this was a bad, you know, a, a bad reputation from the beginning and he's going to get stuck with that now still to this day. So it's crazy to think about that. But anyhow, Celtic Frost was signed to Noise Records based on the fact that Hellhammer had just been signed to Noise Records and released their debut EP, Apocalyptic Raids, earlier in the year in March. So when, when Hellhammer broke up, um, Tom and Eric were, I, I, I mean, this is my, my thought process in these regards i believe tom and eric who were still together from hellhammer were contractually obligated to to provide something to noise uh and a lot of those small companies like noise and 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 things like that they always have these like airtight type of deals that the owners of the companies never want to let the bands out of so i guess Tom and Eric decided, you know what, screw it, we got a record contract, we'll, we'll put out Celtic Frost. So that's what they did. And uh, Celtic Frost was on uh, Noise Records from that point forward. Um, so Morbid Tales was recorded and released as an EP um, in Europe, uh, featuring the aforementioned songs. Oh, actually, hold on. So Morbid Tales consists of the songs Into the Crypts of Rays, Visions of Mortality, Procreation of the Wicked, Return to the Eve, Dance Macabre, and Nocturnal Fear. Now, the, the Morbid Tales was recorded and released as an EP in Europe featuring the songs I just mentioned. But in America, um, they basically had a distribution deal with Enigma and Enigma slash Metal Blade Records. And they included two additional songs that would bump the album to basically make it full-length status. Now, the two songs that they included were songs called Dethroned Emperor and the title track Morbid Tales, which is kind of weird. Like, they, they recorded a song called Morbid Tales, and they release it in their native country, in their native uh, continent, if you want to put it that way, and it doesn't include that. So over in the United States, it comes out, and it has that song. That's like, it's almost like the vice versa stuff of a lot of the British acts in the 60s and 70s who would release singles or songs and they would not be included on the American version of the album, you know. So it's kind of weird. But anyhow, it, it, that's the way it ended up happening. And they gained a lot of popularity enough that they actually put out another EP after that. Then they released their first album. And, you know, and Celtic Frost grew from there and they had a really good following 
in the eighties. Um, I actually got to see Celtic Frost in 1987 when they opened up for Anthrax on the Among the Living tour for Anthrax. And, and for Celtic Frost, I believe it was the Into, Into the Pandemonium tour. Um, I'm, I'm almost sure Into, Into the Pandemonium came out in 1987. So that was the the tour that I got to see them on. Because I know it wasn't to make a theorem because that came out in 85. That was their, their basically their, their first full-blown uh, LP um, but, uh, yeah, so I'm into the pandemonium is what came out in 87 and that was a tour that I saw them on. Um, so just kind of interesting notes on, on this, on the, uh, the songs that came out on this EP. Um, the previously mentioned the throne in Para was covered by anthrax, uh, and was released on, as the B side to their nothing single, which featured John Bush, who was the former singer of armored saint, kind of like a weird circle of things here. Um, and the song Procreation of the Wicked was covered by Sepultura and released as a B-side to their Roots Bloody Roots single. So this was a really cool EP, um, recorded really, really well, very, very well done with the bass and the, and the way the drums, uh, I mean, the mixing is just incredible with this thing. It, it You know, Celtic Frost was one of the early, early inspirations to black metal um and it was really how i I say i mean it is the antithesis to what black metal was because black metal doesn't sound good at all especially in the early days maybe nowadays it does but this was recorded so well and especially being in 1984 it was extremely crisp of a a recording so i really really enjoyed that I, i to 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 even say later recordings that they did were not necessarily to me as good as these this early EP was. So, but anyhow, if you find it out there now, you you get a whole bunch of stuff with it because you get the Emperor's Return EP, you get the Morbid Tales the full length plus a a, a ton of bonus tracks. So the 1999 re-release of this album is great. So if you if you get a chance, pick it up. It's some really cool music. Um so uh, and I, I, I personally think if you like extreme metal, you'll like it. If you like thrash metal, you'll like it. If you like heavy metal in general, you should like it. It's pretty good. Um, if you're a glam metal fan, you might not enjoy it as much. But And and that's, that's to, not to say anything about the fact that Celtic Frost actually had a glam metal period in their career, uh, which they unfortunately regret, but this had nothing to do with it. Anyway, so moving on to our last and final release um, we're staying in over in Europe. So we are moving from Switzerland over to Copenhagen, Denmark. Um, the next album we're going to talk about, the next EP we're going to talk about is from Merciful Fate. It is the Merciful Fate EP, uh, otherwise known in some parts of the world as n- the nuns or as nuns have no fun EP. Uh, it was released on November 8th, 1982 on Ravon Records. It was produced by Jack... Houstonix, I think is the way you pronounce his name, and it was recorded at Stone Studios in Rusendal, Netherlands. And Merciful Fate consists of King Diamond on vocals, Hank Sherman on guitars, Michael Denner on guitars, Timmy Hansen on bass, and Kim Ruz on drums. The songs that are featured on the EP are A Corpse Without a Soul, Nuns Have No Fun, Doomed by the Living Dead, and Devil Eyes. 
So it was this EP, along with the Merciful Fates debut LP, that became so influential to several different metal scenes, uh, to put it that way. Just think about it. It was less than two years later that Metallica met Merciful Fate when they recorded Ride the Lightning in Denmark and rehearsed some of their new material in Fate's practice room in Copenhagen. Um, you know, between Merciful Fate's EP and, the, and their debut album, uh, the previously mentioned Celtic Frost and their Morbid Tales EP and 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 um, the other EPs that they did, uh, Emperor's Return, and their first LP called Tomega Theron. Uh, that, you know, add that and the first three Venom albums, all, all those albums and those three groups really were the ones that laid the groundwork with, between the lyrics and the imagery that would be the basis for black metal. King Diamond was one of the first, if not the first, to introduce corpse paint as part of the band's imagery, and them, along with Venom, Hellhammer, and Bathory, amongst others, introduced lyrics centered around the occult or anti-Christian and satanic themes. So, getting back to the EP, um, after several lineup changes and recording sessions that, that occurred, uh, the, the lineup finally stabilized, and they entered the studio to record the now infamous Merciful Fate EP. Uh, as I mentioned before, it's also uh, sometimes known as Nuns Have No Fun. Um, this led them to get signed by Roadrunner Records, and a year later, they released their first full-length LP, Melissa. Um, I mean, and, and anyone out there, we've talked about it before, Melissa is so highly influential as far as uh, black metal is concerned, thrash metal is concerned, speed metal is concerned. I mean, that is an amazing album, that first LP from, from Merciful Fate. We're not here to talk about that one tonight. We're talking about this. And this EP, um, the Merciful Fate EP, is outstanding all by itself. I mean, Nuns Have No Fun is a pretty cool song. That's actually like mo almost the most basic of songs that they have. Um, a Corpse Without a Soul, uh, as you know, was uh, a portion of that song was covered by Metallica on their 1998 Garage Days LP, um, and uh, it was on the medley that they uh, that they titled Merciful Fate. Um, so you, you have that, um, Dune by the Living Dead, Devil's Eyes, I mean, Devil's Eyes is really um, one of those songs that kind of showcased um, King Diamond's vocals. So it, it, it really highlighted what the band can do and then when they came out with melissa it was like whoa this band really really is good so this ep pretty much you know set the tone for what was going to come later in thrash metal and for what was going to come later in black metal uh it that's how influential this is and, and you may not hear it you know you may not hear the 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 inspiration to what would become black metal but you think about the, the imagery and you think about the the, the, the lyrics that, that King Diamond and, and Merciful Fate put together, um, you could definitely see where it started. Um, you know, the 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 occult references, the satanic references, the corpse paint from King Diamond. I mean, he is basically the blueprint of what would come in black metal. The difference was black metal took it literally to the extreme. You know, I've just laid out all of the uh, of the six, uh, there were six EPs that we we talked about tonight, or that I talked about tonight, and it's really you know the scene as as heavy metal began to really take off because lots of people talk about how you know Black Sabbath was the originators of heavy metal 
And, you know, Led Zeppelin added to it, Deep Purple added to it, Kiss in the 70s, you know, and then, you know, those, I mean, realistically, when you think about all that stuff, yeah, that was, some of that stuff was heavy. Some of that stuff was uh, metallic in, in, in terms of what heavy metal is. But realistically, when the glam scene of 1980 or 81 took off and all those bands that were just, what's the word I want to use? They were all just coming to the top. They were all now blooming. I mean, there was so many that they all went in different directions. Some of them, you know, stayed on the same branch, but other branches just, you know, went way off in a different direction, you know, and the Bay Area thrashing grew. Some there was some hard stuff. Slayer came out of LA. They were they were thrashy. And then, you know, New York caught up on it and, you know, uh, caught the sound and you had anthrax and you had overkill and bands like that. Especially and then you had the New York City hardcore scene. So a lot of that was was picked up on by anthrax and overkill. So it was just crazy to think that all this happened really within a three-year period of, of, of all this stuff brewing. Um, so we're going to do another episode on EPs at another time. Maybe when something like this happens again where Chris is unavailable. Um, but I, I really would like to somehow, you know, at some point maybe do a little bit more of an extended version of this with some other EPs. And, and Chris and I go back and forth and talk about that. But for tonight, this was our way of basically getting to you guys some 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 content so that you guys can listen to some stuff and keep to keep the the momentum going. But anyhow, we wanted to put something out there for you guys because I know that you know you guys are excited to hear us uh, you know put something out every week, and we didn't want to go three weeks without putting anything out for you guys. So this is what we came up with for tonight. And um, so this is my list of of some of the best debut EPs from 80s metal bands. And I just want to remind you that we're on every single major podcast platform, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Podbean, and any other you can think of. So if you haven't already, please click like or subscribe so that you can get our latest episode on your favorite device every time we drop a new one. And don't forget to leave us a comment on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or send us an email to debatingmetal at gmail.com. YouTube viewers, click subscribe and ring the bell to be notified when we post a new episode. So remember to check out our next episode when Chris will return and we're going to spark up another exciting metal debate. On behalf of Chris and myself, stay safe and always turn it up to 11. See ya!